Well, today we're going to have communion. I uh, was going to go right back into uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, but I thought, well, you know what? We're going to uh, do that, start that next week instead, but we're still going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians, obviously, for communion. But I thought it's good to reflect on uh, communion time, and uh, sometimes we kind of hurry through it when we're doing this, and so I just want to pray for our children as they're dismissed to their classes, and then we'll get into our, our time together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for these young hearts, and pray for the teachers and all that's involved in teaching them Sunday school. Lord, that you would uh, enable them to be taught in a way that uh, they can absorb it and understand it and apply it to their own lives. And thank you for the faithful servants of Sunday school. And we just pray that you would bless their time together as they're dismissed in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to ask you to stand in honor of God's word and turn over to uh, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. This is a text that talks about uh, Jesus Christ is our high priest. And so uh, you can follow along Hebrews chapter 4 verses, verse 14 the writer of Hebrews writes, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness Verse 3, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the living God. May he bless it to our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. That text reminds us that we have a Savior who walked in our footsteps. He came down here to earth to live very much in the same way that we live, yet without sin, the Bible says. And so we need to remind ourselves all these things about Christ. I love verse 5 when it says, So Christ also did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. So you don't apply to be a high priest in the Old Testament. That's not how it worked. It worked in a way that you were appointed, okay? And um, it's important to understand that Christ has been appointed as our Savior, as our Lord, as that Lamb of God, that sacrifice that paid the debt for our sin. And so when we look at Christ be reminded in verse 9, it says, In being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all, what's it say next, who obey him, who obey him. 
See, there's a lot of misunderstanding, I think, when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of people that think if they come to church or they say a prayer before a meal or they read a Bible once a week, that somehow that gives you eternal life. And that could not be further from the truth, that that may be a good thing to do, but that's not how we earn our salvation. We can't earn our salvation is the point, right? Our salvation is granted to us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so when we come together as the body of Christ to celebrate something like communion, the Lord's Supper, I think it's very important that we understand that this isn't just a ritual for many of us. This isn't something we do that takes away our sin. I was brought up in a church that taught when you take communion and you go to confession, you do all that stuff, that somehow you're earning God's grace. And the Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says you cannot earn God's grace. By grace you've been saved, what, through faith? It's not of yourselves. Not of works, lest any man should be able to boast. Can you imagine what heaven would look like if we could get there by our own works? What'd you do to get here? Oh, I fed the hungry, I did this. We'd be bragging all over the place. And as we said last week, the only thing that's gonna remind us of our insufficiency to save ourselves in heaven is when we look at our, our Savior, our Lord, and we see the scars in his hands. We see the imprints of the suffering that he went through. And that's why I believe those scars are going to remain in heaven. Because it has to remind us, you're not here based on what you did. The only reason you're here, the only reason you're in heaven is because you trusted in my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we come together to celebrate this time of communion, it's very much a celebration. Um, sometimes people think, well, why do you call Good Friday good? I mean, that's the day Jesus died, right? Well, yeah, but that's good. Some people don't understand that. And when you watch shows like The Passion of the Christ, what do you see? You see the suffering, you see the suffering, the suffering, the suffering. Well, yeah, he had to go through suffering. But it was through that suffering, that's what made him victorious over sin and death. See, our, our faith is very much a faith of polar opposites, if you think about it. Um... The Bible calls us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, does it not? It calls us to confess the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord. And if you confess that with your, your mouth, the Bible says you are saved. But the Bible also says that before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ for salvation. Before the foundation of the world, the whole plan of Christ was set in place. We see our faith is constantly pulling us in two different directions. If I were to ask you, if you're a Christian here today, and I were to ask you, how many, how many gods are there? What would your answer be? One. There's one God. And yet we're called to believe in what? The Trinity. <laughs> God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all one. Different personality. But they're all one God. That doesn't make any sense, logically. I mean, you just have to take math 101, right? Basic math. One plus one plus one equals what? It equals three. Doesn't equal one. 
But that's not God's kind of math. And, and sometimes we forget that, you know, God the Father, we, we know that, well, that's, that's an important part of the Trinity, God the Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? And Jesus Christ, I mean, he's essential for salvation. If there was no Jesus in the Trinity, there would be no salvation. So he's, and then you get to the Holy Spirit, and we'll be talking about this in, when we get, for, continue our study in Corinthians, we get to the Holy Spirit, you begin to realize in a lot of churches, they kind of just put him on the shelf, on the back burner. It's like, well, we focus on God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, well, we don't really understand that. <laughs> so we're not going to deal with that one. But they're all God. They're all equally God. And so we need to be reminded of the, of the simple fact that when we come to this time, this communion time, it's for those who have committed their lives to Christ, who have come to Christ and, and asked Christ to forgive their sins based on his work on the cross, understanding you could never earn it, your debt is too large, there's no way you could ever pay for it. And so you throw yourself at Christ wholeheartedly. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, this whole Jesus thing is just a crutch for people, weak people. No, my friends, the Jesus faith, Christian faith, is not for weak people. It's for people that understand the cost, what it involves. Because Jesus never in anywhere in the gospel went up to someone and said, hey, here's a little track, you know, God has a special plan for your life. And now if you believe that and you believe you're a sinner and, and you believe that, that God's not and he has sent his son Jesus to die for your sins and that's me, um, if, you, if you just pray this prayer after me, then you'll be a Christian. Welcome to the family. Jesus never did that. He never did that. He never did anything of that sort. He went up to people and said, oh, you want to you wanna follow me? Guess what? Matthew Leave your very uh, uh, well tax collection business. Leave it. Walk away from it and follow me. I mean, you wonder if Jesus came in here today and if he pointed to us and said, you, follow me right now. And he walked out of this room. How many of us would follow him? Or would we stop and we say, well, well, wait a minute. I mean, my wife didn't come to church today or my kids didn't come to church today, so can't I go home and say goodbye to them first, Jesus? <laughs> no, I told you to follow me. Well, what about my business I own? I can't just leave that. Well, <laughs> are you going to follow me or not? See, the call of the gospel is not some rosy little prayer that you pray. It's a call of self-sacrifice. It's a call, really, of obedience. See, there's a lot of people, even here this morning, I'm sure that if I asked them, do you believe the gospel, they would say yes. Sure, I believe the gospel. I believe Jesus died for my sins. The unfortunate thing is, so many of those same people are unwilling to obey the gospel. It's one thing to believe the gospel. It's another thing to obey the gospel. And that's what Hebrews pointed out for us. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. He's the source. There's only one way to heaven. There's only one road, that's through Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You're not going to get it through a church, this church, or any other church. You're not going to get it by taking communion. You're not going to get it by getting baptized or joining whatever. 
or feeding the poor or doing whatever work you want to put in there. You're not going to get it by that. You'll get it by obeying, it says. He's the source. What do we have to do to tap into the source? Verse 9, it says, to all who obey him. To all who obey him. And so when we look at the Lord's Supper, when we come to the Lord's Supper, it tells us in the book of Corinthians that we should come often. Um, when I mentioned to someone the other day that we're having communion on Sunday, well, we just had communion. <laughs> so what? Who cares? Oh, you think we can only have it on the first Sunday of the, the month. Is that it? <laughs> See, that's where we like things, right? We like to put things in their little box and just keep it right there. All the, that's not what Jesus taught at all. He said, do this as often as you can. Do it often. He says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And he adds in verse 26 of chapter 11, 1 Corinthians, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, often, often, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, when they broke bread in the New Testament church, in the book of Acts, when it's talking about breaking bread, it, it refers to the Lord's Supper. It refers to that night when Christ broke bread with his disciples. And it actually became a, a weekly occurrence for the New Testament church. Um, there's no prescription for communion. You don't have to do it once a month. You could do it every week. You could do it every day for that matter. He says do it often. I think we need to be kind of reminded of that. Because if you're, if you're not reminded of that, what happens? It becomes a what, ritual, <laughs> just like anything else. I mean, when I was part of the Roman Catholic Church, every time you go in the church, what do you do? You put your hand in a little water, right? You go to your seat and you genuflect in the aisle and sit down. You shut up. You wouldn't say a word. And then someone would get up and Say a bunch of stuff in Latin that you didn't even understand. What was it? It was a ritual. See, that's religion. That's religion. We don't want to be part of religion. We want to have that relationship with Christ. If you're trusting in a religion, you're trusting in something that's man-made. That's all religion is, is man's attempt to reach out to a holy God. We see that all the time. I mean, sometimes we, we think that somehow we're going we're gonna to earn our way to heaven. You know, sometimes it's funny because we, we do things often in our lives probably that fall into that category of becoming a ritual. I mean, most of your husbands, before you leave the house, what do you do? Kiss your wife goodbye, right? You just do it. And... Sometimes when you forget, <laughs> you're in a hurry, what happened? You hear about it, right? <laughs> you didn't kiss me goodbye. It's like, oh, really? Okay. You got to do it. It's not that you don't like kissing your wife. That's, that's not the point. But it, it, it's gotten to a point where it's just, it's just something you do. Or prayers before a meal. Sometimes it's just what we do. We just pray. Some mindless prayer. When I was growing up, we could say our prayers really, really quick. Bless the Lord for these, I guess, which you were about to see from the body of Christ, Lord, amen. That's it. That's what our prayer was at the dinner table every single night. And then it was like, get out of my way, because you had nine people at the table looking for food. <laughs> so you had to be quick. 
but he wants us to do it often. He wants us to come to the Lord's Supper often. Secondly, he wants us to come to the Lord's Supper with love for others. Look at at verses uh, 23 to 32 there. He gave instructions in chapter 11 how to do this. Now remember, the Corinthian church was a really, really messed up church. They were all focused on themselves. They weren't focused on others. They weren't focused on serving. They were focused on showing off their spiritual gifts. And they only focused on the spiritual gifts that got the most attention. They weren't really interested in the gift of serving. They were more interested in the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues or something that would put them in front of other people and make them look spiritual. That's what they were interested in. But look at verses 23 to 32. For I received from the Lord, Paul says, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What would have gone through their mind? Have you ever been over to somebody's house for dinner and they took a loaf of bread and they said, hey, let's, let's break the bread. We'll break the bread. This is my body. I mean, you'd probably be running out the back door, right? Like, well, I'm getting out of here. And he says, he broke it. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink. Drink it in remembrance of me, he says. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, there's nothing that's earned by taking communion. The only thing you're doing when you're partaking of communion is what are you doing? You're proclaiming. You're proclaiming the Lord's death. The Lord's death. You're saying, you know what? I know personally that first of all, I'm a sinner. Secondly, that I needed forgiveness for my sin. Thirdly, that I could only turn to one person and that was Jesus Christ. And I know that he came, he was born, he lived a perfect life. And that I put my faith, my trust in what he did on the cross. I'm putting my faith, my trust in his death for me. See, if someone does something for you, why would you go do it? Or try to do it? I mean, if I came over and your car was dirty and I said, hey, you know what, let me wash your car. I'm going to wash your car. And I washed your car. Nice and shiny. It's all dried up. No, no water spots. Nothing. It's perfect. And I drive away. I forgot I left my sunglasses. They're laying in the grass. So I came around the block. And I pulled up in front of your house. And you got a big bucket of suds. And you're throwing What would that say to me? Wow. Yeah, thanks for washing my car, pal. You didn't do it right. You didn't do it good enough. Whatever. I have to do it again. See, that's how we, we, we think sometimes when we think about our salvation. Somehow we just got to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do a better job. That's not going to save you. The only thing that will save you is when you understand that Christ is the sacrifice, that we are proclaiming his death the death that he died in our behalf. And then in verse 27, it says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. In other words, you have something in your heart that's not right. That's why when we come to the Lord's Savior, we should have love for one another. That's not what was going on in the Corinthian church, and we know that because we've been going through a study of the book of Corinthians. First Corinthians, he says in verses 18 and 19 of the same chapter, he says, in the first place, when you come together, I hear that there's divisions among you. 
And in part, I believe it, he says, for there must also be divisions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. It's kind of a difficult verse to understand, is it not? What Paul is saying, I believe, is that that God works even out in a bad situation. He permits divisions. He permits factions within the church. Why? Because it reveals who the truly spiritual ones are. New Living Translation says this, but of course there must be divisions among you so that those of you who are right will be recognized. Someone paraphrased it, of course you must have your factions so that your favorite leaders can be in the spotlight. (laughs) See, that kind of honestly depicts what was going on in the church of Corinth. And Paul says in verse 17, it'd be better off if I didn't even come with that sort of rivalry going on. I'd rather not even come visit, he says. In verses 20 and 22, what's he do? He, he confronts their, their selfishness and their, their gluttony. Look at what he says. It says in verse 20, for when you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, excuse me. For in eating, verse 21, each one goes ahead with his own meal. So they're having an all-out meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? Paul says, no, I can't. This is not a good thing you're doing, Corinthians. You've taken the Lord's Supper and you've turned it into this pagan love feast. I mean, can you imagine if you walked into this church today, hey, it's Communion Sunday, and half the congregation was drunk on the wine we're serving, holding a chicken thigh in our hand. Hey, there's food up there. I mean, that would be so confusing. What are you people doing? That's what was going on in this church. And then because they were drunk, that led to immorality. And this is all centered around the Lord's table. They're there to celebrate the death of Christ, and they turned it into this selfish love feast. Why? Because they had no love in their hearts for others. He was shocked by their selfish behavior. See, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we should genuinely have love toward one another. It shouldn't be just some ritual we're going through. During this pandemic, a lot of people, a lot of churches, I think, We did it one time, and then I kind of shook myself and said, I don't even know why I did that. (laughs) But when we were doing the video live stream things of the services, okay, I think one of them fell on a communion Sunday. So I encourage you, oh, just take it at home. Take communion at home. That's not biblical. And I apologize for recommending you do that publicly because it's wrong. Communion is something that should be done where? With the church. With the body of Christ. See, that's one of the many reasons the church gathering together in person is essential. And it's the same way, by the way, with, with those, both those ordinances. Actually, the Lord's Supper, right? The ordinance of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Believer's baptism. You know, I've I've heard some Christians that say, well, I want to get baptized, but, you know, can I just do it in my bathtub at home? Can I baptize myself? No, you can't. It's not that I have to do it. Anybody can baptize somebody. You don't have to be a pastor or an elder or anything. But on the other hand, it should be with the body of Christ. 
Why? Because what is baptism? Baptism is an outward testimony of an inward change. So part of that process, as far as baptism goes, it's giving some semblance of a testimony. That's why when people get baptized in our church, we have them write out a testimony. And then you go up here in this tank in nice warm water, and we give you a piece of paper that you wrote out, and you can stand there and read it so everybody can hear your testimony. Well, that sounds intimidating. Uh, yes, it's supposed to be. I mean, why would you want to get baptized in the dark where no one's noticing? Well, I, I don't know if I could do that in front of people. Do you ever think about what Christ did for you in front of people? I mean, we have a warped sense of what's important. You know, yeah, it's a little uncomfortable to get up in front of people and speak. It's very uncomfortable for me every week. Never goes away. Never becomes comfortable. It doesn't become something, I can't wait till Sunday morning and I can't stand in front of people and possibly make stupid mistakes with my lips and my tongue. And, and then, no. <laughs> it's very intimidating. Now, there are personalities that just love it. Okay, I am not one of them personally. So what do I do? Just trust the Lord that somehow he's going to work through it. But we have to have a genuine love for each other as the body of Christ. And when we hear churches saying, well, yeah, you know, we haven't met in a year and a half, but that's all right. No, it's not all right. It's not all right at all. Because you're going against the command of Scripture. Do not forsake, what's it say? the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. And that's unfortunately what has happened with this pandemic. This whole live stream thing, the whole remote service thing, it's, 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 it's become a habit. It's become easy to do. You know, I think going to church that way would be kind of like going for biblical counseling over Zoom. It's just not going to work. I mean, yeah, they can share some words with you, but you know what? You have to be with the person, right? I mean, you have to see what's going on, how they're dealing with things. You have to see what their facial reactions are and everything. And yeah, you can see some of that on a camera, but you don't get the gist of it if you're not there in person. So we're called to, to be together um, you know, if we're not correct with each other, if there's a problem with our love for others when we come to this table, Jesus said pretty simply in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24, he says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, it says, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. And this is God, Jesus speaking, so he knows your heart. He knows what's in your heart even this morning. You don't want to come to the Lord's table you know, with some kind of unresolved sin in your heart. You want to confess it. The good thing is, you don't need to stand up and confess it in front of everybody. You confess it to God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And yeah, if your brother has something against you or you have something against your brother or sister in Christ, then maybe you need to confess it to God and then afterwards make things right between the two of you. Otherwise, what happens? You just become religious hypocrites. We don't want that. You have to participate in the Lord's Supper with a clear conscience. Um, and it's not a, <laughs> it's just a prayer away. That's the hard thing. You know, for, for a lot of people, I mean, I've known couples that get in a fight Sunday morning. And then they come to 
communion service. Because they're stubborn, like most couples are, they don't make things right. But at least they do the God-honoring thing and say, man, I'm just not going to take communion because my heart's not right. And that's wise to do that. But at the same time, what's even wiser is just make it right. (laughs) Tie to yourself and, and do what's needed to resolve any conflict. What happens in homes where that doesn't occur Sometimes, when parents have younger children, what do the children observe in a Christian home? Maybe mom and dad get in a fight on Sunday morning, and then they come to church, and the kids are watching all this. And they're both still seething, but the communion cup comes by, and they both take it and drink it. What's the, what, what message does that send to the, the kids it's just, what, what is this Christian thing? It's phony. <laughs> this kind of Christianity is worthless to them. It's hypocritical. The Lord's Supper should display the truth that we are one body in Christ. And so before we partake, we should clear up these relational conflicts to the best of our ability. And that may just mean going to God and confessing your own wrong heart, and making it right with him, and then later making it right with the other people. And sometimes you can't do that. Sometimes people are stubborn and it doesn't work out. But you know what? At least you can clear your own conscience before God. And then thirdly, coming to the Lord's Supper means that we remember the Lord. We remember the Lord. We're not focused on our selfish needs. We're not focused on our own wants We're focused on the Lord. Now, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians before Matthew, Mark, Luke, any of those were written. And so we have the earliest recorded words of Jesus and the earliest account of the first Lord's Supper here in chapter 11. He says basically we should remember four things. First, remember the Lord himself. Maybe you're sitting here going, well, I'm a Christian. How could I forget the Lord? We do it all the time. If we're honest with ourselves and with others, we do it all the time. We get so busy with stuff, things get all out of sort. We forget not only the Lord, we forget his commands, we forget his word, we forget everything. We just trod off doing our own thing. Have you ever done that, or is it just me? Maybe it's just me. I don't know. That would be bad if it's just me. Okay. (laughs) Okay, good. Praise the Lord. One honest soul here this morning. No. But we need to remember the Lord himself, right? Um, We easily forget that. We forget what he's done for us. In my office, I have a calendar of the grandkids. They made for me one Christmas, and it's an old calendar, but it has all their pictures on it. I have a picture of my wife and in my office as well. And I, you know, I don't have pictures there because I forget what they look like. That's not why I hang the pictures up. However, the older I get, I'm beginning to wonder. But anyway, maybe that day will come, but hopefully not. Um, but why do I have those pictures up there? Not because I don't know what my wife looks like or my grandson or my granddaughters or my daughter. I, I, I know what they look like. But when I look at their picture, what does it do? It, it, it's not there to jog my memory, but it's there to what? Touch my heart, right? I remember, wow, I really love these individuals. It reminds me of the ones that are Loved ones to me, even though they may be thousands of miles away, I can look at their picture and just in a second be recalled, wow, I, I really love these people. Um, you can recall all the good times and things you have together. I was looking through some pictures on my phone the other day, and I was bringing up pictures of my brother-in-law and my sister who passed away a couple years ago, and it was like, wow, this is, this is kind of interesting. I'm remembering all this stuff, you know? And, and that's what pictures are for. See, the value of a picture is emotional. It touches our hearts. And in the Lord's Supper, Jesus left us with a picture of himself, a picture to remember him by. 
And so he's just saying here, we should pause throughout the day and, and look at it often. Throughout the week, look at it often. We should remind ourselves of the great love that he had for us that was shown so supremely on the cross. We should fill our hearts with the desire to see him when he comes in his glory. It should make us look to ourselves and ask, is there anything in my life that needs to be dealt with before I meet him face to face? It should be at least a reminder that we should thank God for what he has given us in Christ. The Lord's Supper is a time to remember our beloved Savior, but secondly, it's also to remember the Lord's substitutionary sacrifice for you. That's why he said Jesus took bread and he broke it. This is my body, which is for you. Remember we talked about the lamb, the spotless lamb in Isaiah 53 a couple weeks ago. Our guilt was placed on him. Now by faith in Christ, we put our faith in Christ and, and God takes our sin and he puts it on Christ and he pays for our sin. That's what Christ is saying there, that I will be broken for you. First uh, Peter 2.24 says he bore our sins he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Why? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then it says, for by his wounds you were healed. That's not prosperity gospel, faith healing language there. By his wounds we were healed spiritually. Spiritually. Never forget that. And then thirdly, remember your complete forgiveness through the new covenant. The old covenant sacrifice could not take away sins permanently. Hebrews 10 tells us that. But Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That new covenant or promise refers to the Lord's promise even in Hebrews 8.12 where he says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. We should remember, beloved, that the Lord forgets. Now, he's omniscient, so he doesn't forget in the same way that we do. He knows everything. Rather, what's it mean? It means that he will not bring up our sins for judgment if our faith is in Christ, if, it's, if our faith is in the work that Christ did on the cross. See, if you're here this morning and you've never come to Christ, you've never come to Jesus Christ, and you never put your trust in him, that is your greatest need. That is your greatest need, without a doubt. And if you have done that and you're here this morning and you know you're trusting in Christ, Never forget that his death, what did it do? It, it reconciled you to God forever. It brought back the proper relationship between you and your creator God for all eternity. We have complete forgiveness through his sacrifice. Not partial. And that's why it's so important when we do sin, and we do. We're, we're fallen human beings. We will sin. And that's why the Bible says, if you confess your sin, basically go to God and say the same thing that God says about it. Guess what? It's wrong. That's all you have to say. Yeah, I blew it, God. I'm sorry. Help me. Help me put this behind me. Thank you for Jesus paying for this sin. Holy Spirit, fill me anew and let's press on. But what happens with Christians? They fall into sin and then Satan comes along and, and kind of compounds the problem. You should be sorry for your sin. But just because you sin doesn't make you sorry as an individual before God because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ 
Well, the last thing, remember that Jesus is coming again. Notice what it says in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until he comes. I don't know about you, but man, I'm looking forward to that day. That Greek verb there translated proclaim, elsewhere it's used proclaiming the gospel. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection. Because he couldn't come again if he wasn't raised from the dead. And he couldn't be raised from the dead unless he died. And he couldn't have died unless he was born. Each time that we partake of the Lord's Supper could be the last time. Do you ever think of that? It could be the last time. He could come right after the service. First Thessalonians, the trumpet may sound, the dead in Christ will rise and will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The Lord's Supper reminds us to be ready for that day. Hold short accounts, not only with God, but with others. And then the self-examination. Examine yourself, verses 27 to 34. It kind of makes sense. But a man must examine himself. Don't examine your spouse. Don't examine your neighbor. Don't examine the person sitting next to you. I remember after one communion service, someone said to me, did you see so-and-so? They actually took communion. (laughs) And so did their children. (laughs) I said, no, I didn't notice that, but why did you notice that? (laughs) Where were you looking? (laughs) You know, we examine ourselves, not anyone else. And when we do that, God will show us if there's something in our heart that shouldn't be there, if there's a sin that needs to be confessed or turned away from or whatever. God will do that. So the Lord's Supper is not for perfect saints, but rather for those who struggle with the shortcomings and sins that are common to all of us. But we also have to recognize if there's something that needs to be dealt with, we need to deal with it in our own heart. John Stott said this in relationship to the cross. He says, if the cross is not the central thing in our thinking, it is safe to say that our faith, whatever it may be, is not the Christian faith. And our creed, whatever it may be, is not the Apostles' Creed. See, the Lord's Supper reminds us to keep the cross of Jesus central to everything, everything that we do. And so with those words in mind, let's bow our heads and um, we will, if you don't have a communion cup, come up and, and grab one. And just so you know, this is a, a time for believers. It's a time for those who know Christ, those who have put their faith, their trust in Christ. And if you feel led to do that even now, In the quietness of this moment, you cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me, Lord. I want want to be saved. God will answer that prayer. And he will transform you. He will, the Bible says, old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. So this is a time for those who know Christ. And pray that you'd respect that. But at the same time, for believers, as we said, as we examine our own hearts, On the same night in which Christ did this with his disciples, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. This represents, it's not physically my body, but it represents, it's a symbol of my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for this wafer we hold in our hands. And Lord, we know that there's nothing spiritual about this as a object It's just a piece of unleavened bread. But what it represents is far greater. The symbolism here is immense. It it represents the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on that cross. 
the perfect God-man who willingly took upon himself our sin, the sin of all who would ever put their faith or trust in him for salvation. He took it upon himself. Even though he had himself never committed one sin, he had to be the perfect sacrifice so he could bear the sins of all those he would save. And so, Father, we thank you what this represents, and we pray that you would bless it to our bodies as we partake together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible says that on the same night, after he broke the bread, he took the cup of the new covenant. He said, this represents my blood. When we talk about the blood of Christ, we're not talking about the physical human blood that ran out of his body. That was blood like every other human. We don't worship Jesus' blood. It, it speaks of a far greater thing, the atonement of Christ. It was through his sacrifice. The idea that the life of any being is in the blood. If you take the blood out of a body, the body has no life. And that's what Jesus freely gave up for us, his body and his blood. And so he took the cup and he blessed it and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant which represents my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for our communion time this morning. We pray that as we close off with a song, that you would bless our hearts. Thank you, Lord, that you came, you lived, you died, you rose again. Victorious over sin and death, and now we can forever look forward to the day when you return and we are gathered to be with you for eternity. And so, Father, we pray that you would uh, um, bless our time, bless our fellowship afterwards across the way in the fellowship hall. And Lord, we just rejoice that we serve a risen Savior. Thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.